Would you turn with me, please, to the 24th chapter of the book of Joshua. We're bringing our studies in Joshua to an end this morning with uh, Joshua's last words to Israel. We were treated this past week with our president's last words, at least uh, his last uh, words to us as president, both uh, his final television appearance and his final radio uh, address. And uh, most of us uh, listened at least to the television uh, address because we sensed that something significant would be said. Normally, last words uh, are significant words. These are Joshua's last words before he retired. And uh, as we can imagine, these are very important. This is a very important discourse. This is really a distillation of uh, Joshua's philosophy of life. This is life boiled down to its essentials. I'd like to say something uh, first about the setting of this discourse. We're told in verse 1 that Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem. Shechem was rich in associations for the people of of God. This was the first uh, dwelling place of Abraham. When Abraham came out of the river of the Chaldees and was brought into the land of Canaan, he first camped at Shechem between Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. And it's there that he put up his tent And he erected an altar, and he began to call upon the name of the Lord. If you go back to Genesis 12, where that that incident is uh, referred to, uh, there are two things to observe about that that happening. Uh, One is the statement that the Canaanite was still in the land. The other is that that particular dwelling place was over against the Oak of Morah. Nothing is incidental in Scripture. I believe everything has significance. We need to think these things through. The statement that the Canaanite was then in the land means more than that uh, simple fact that there were Canaanites in the land of Canaan. That's obvious. It's that there were Canaanites there in Shechem. They were living in Shechem, and they were worshiping under the Oak of Morah. Longfellow said that uh, underneath the spreading chestnut tree, the village smithy stands, Ancient Near Eastern scholars would say under the spreading oak tree, the village priest of Baal stood. That's where they erected their altars. Those were Baal sanctuaries. The fact that this is called the Oak of Morah in Genesis 12 is important. Morah means soothsayer or teacher. This was a place from which Baal worship was promulgated. It was taught. This was a center of Baal worship. And it was there that Abram pitched his tent, erected his altar, and began to worship God. The point of that story is the two are to be set over against one another. They're the idol, there's the idol worship of the Canaanites, and there's the worship of the Lord God of Israel uh, as represented in, Asia, in Abraham's worship. That's why Joshua brought the nation back to Shechem. Or Shechem. Uh, this place uh, had this association in their mind. It's a very significant, important place to them. And it's here that Joshua utters his last words. Now I want to say uh, one thing more about the form of this discourse before we uh, look at it. We all recognize that literature has uh, different types, different styles, different genre. Uh, If you read, uh, if you pick up a book and it starts out uh, once upon a time, da-da-da-da-da, we assume it's a fairy tale or a piece of fiction. If we pick up a document and it says, whereas the party of the first part, we know that's a legal document. Uh, any ancient Near Eastern scholar picking up Joshua 24, if they'd never read it before, would recognize it as a Canaanite treaty. 
all over the ancient Near East. This was the form that was used for covenants and treaties. The term they assigned for it is a suzerainty treaty. A suzerain comes from the same word as sovereign, from a French word. Uh, it has to do with the relationship that a lord has over his subjects. Uh, a bunch of these contracts uh, that we have that are in existence today, there are books full of them. We read some of them while I was in school. They follow the same form. They're contracts made between an overlord and a feudal society and his serfs or his, uh, his subjects, his underlings. And this particular uh, discourse follows that form. It's as though Joshua went to the uh, uh, stationer and he bought a standard uh, contractual form and then he followed that form in his, in his sermon. Now, uh, these treaties always uh, follow pretty much the same. Uh, uh, they're put together the same way. They start out with a brief introduction, so-and-so says to so-and-so, and then there follows a long historical uh, introduction or prologue in which the Lord reminds his uh, subjects what he has done for them. He will say, for example, you recall in the drought of 87, I supplied you with corn. I filled your granaries with corn. Otherwise, your children would have starved. And there will be other references to his largesse, his goodness to the people that he uh, ruled over. And then immediately after that is uh, what scholars call the legal obligations. I have done this for you. You are to do this for me. These are the obligations that his subjects have. Uh, for example, it will say, I, I supplied you with corn. Your responsibility is to fill my granary with corn or supply mercenaries to my army or something of that nature. Then you have curses and blessings. If you do this, you'll have many, many children. Uh, your flocks will increase. Uh, you'll have large herds. You'll have bumper crops. If you don't do this, all your children will come down with chicken pox and all sorts of dire consequences will, uh, will follow. And then uh, the last section of, of the treaty, uh, as in modern-day uh, contract, is uh, contract form is a, a place for the for the witnesses to sign. Now, if you look at this um, at this discourse, it follows that that form exactly. It begins with a preamble or or introduction. Joshua said to all the people, "Thus says the Lord God of Israel." In these ancient Near Eastern contracts, you will have Marcellus saying to Debitusub or someone, "Thus says Marcellus to." So and so, who is my uh, uh, my serf, my uh, my servant, and then there would follow historical introduction, which is what you have from two B on through verse thirteen. The Lord enumerates His goodness to Israel, uh, and then in verses fourteen through eighteen, Israel's legal obligations: fear the Lord and serve Him in integrity and, and in truth. In other words, in a, with a single heart, single-mindedly, and then in nineteen. Uh, through 21, curses and blessings. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done good to you. And then finally, the witnesses in verses 22 and 23, except here significantly, the witness, uh, the Israel witnesses against themselves. They're going to hold one another accountable for keeping this, uh, this treaty. Now with that form in the back of our minds, let's, let's look at some portions of this, uh, this proclamation. Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. That's the preamble. And now begins the historical introduction. From ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, namely Terah, father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor. Uh, and they served other gods. This is the launching pad for this entire uh, 
uh, discourse. Uh, let me let me take a break here for a minute and explain something about the Old Testament view of idolatry. Uh, this is what I call the theology of idolatry, for lack of of a better term. We have to learn to look at idols and idolatry the way the Old Testament does. There is in this discourse constant reference to something that happened beyond the river. It's almost as though Joshua was saying this is something that happened across the tracks. This is another culture. This is another world over there. And over there they worshipped idols. Over here we do not. And the starting point for this discourse is the reminder that you people to whom I speak once upon a time worshipped idols. Uh, your ancestor did, Terah and uh, his, uh, his children, his two sons. Now we have to understand about uh, something about the way the Old Testament looks at idols. The prophets never take idols seriously. That's interesting. Their approach is to poke fun at them. They ridicule people because they, uh, they, they, they worship an idol. Uh, there's a clear example of that in Isaiah. If you start reading from Isaiah 40 on, you'll see uh, what the prophet does. He says, for example, I'm the God who speaks of the future. I tell you what's going to happen. I foreclose uh, things. I, I foretell things before they happen. Uh, now, ask your idol if he can tell you the future. In fact, ask him anything. Ask him to say something. Come on, don't just stand there. Say something. He says, good, bad, indifferent. Just say anything. Just speak to me. And that's why idols are called dumb idols in the Old Testament. They don't tell you anything. They just stand there. And then in Isaiah 44, Isaiah says, just think of the absurdity of going into the forest and cutting down a tree, cutting the tree in half, taking half of that log and carving an idol out of it and covering it with gold and and standing it up on its feet and worshiping it, falling down to it, being subject to that, and taking the other half of the log and burning it to keep yourself warm and to cook food for your family. Isn't that absurd? Isn't that ridiculous? How crazy can you get? And then in Isaiah 46, he describes Nebo and Bel falling down. He says they bowed down. Well, in what sense did they bow down? Well, when Israel went into exile, they picked up their idols, they took them off their feet, they threw them over their shoulders, and they carried them into exile. And Isaiah says, in contrast, I have carried you, I have borne you. And in contrast to the idol craftsmen who form an idol, I shaped you with my hands. The whole point is it's absurd to worship an idol. It reminds me of the old ad for Buick automobiles. This is something to believe in. I have to chuckle. And here's a piece of metal that someone made. It may be a very fine car. I don't question that. But something to believe in? Come on, give me a break. This thing is to be the object of my faith? You have to be pulling my leg. You see, that's the approach that the prophets always take to idols. They joke about them. They think they're funny. But they do not think there's anything funny about idolatry. Idolatry itself is taken very very seriously. Why? Because worshiping an idol is not a neutral thing. It's not a matter of worshiping God, worshiping Satan, and worshiping idols. There's no such thing as neutrality in the universe. 
As C.S. Lewis put it, every inch of the universe is either claimed or counterclaimed by God and Satan. There's no neutral territory. And the point of view that the prophets take is that idolatry is very serious because it entails worshiping Satan. And then interesting, Paul makes it very clear in 1 Corinthians 10, 20. He says, idolaters worship demons. Behind every idol, as funny as that idol may be, stands a demon. We can poke fun at the idol, but we must not poke fun at those who worship idols. And we ourselves must not take lightly the fact that we are idolaters because what we have done is is to put ourselves in the hands of of, uh, of, of, all, of the evil forces that stand behind our seen and known world, where we've become demon worshipers. And, and therefore, idolatry is something very, very serious. Now, uh, this is the starting point. You served other gods. And this idea of serving gods is the theme of the chapter some 17 times. We'll read in this chapter the word serve. And the point that Joshua is making, this is life boiled down to its, to its quintessence, is that you got to serve somebody, as Bob Dylan puts it. you got to serve somebody in this world. Nobody is a free agent. There's no such thing as serving God and serving yourself or even serving sin and serving Satan. There's no third thing. There's no neutral ground in, in, the, in the universe. You will either serve God or you will serve Satan. And you have to make the choice. Which one will you serve? You say, oh, well, I, you know, that counts me out. I don't have any idols around my house. Well, let's see. Now, I'm not going to take time to go through the rest of uh, the historical introduction except to point out that the emphasis here is on what God did. I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. God took this moon-worshipping Sumerian, Abraham, uh, who worshipped seen, the moon god, the most obscene, the most uh, uh, the most lewd and lascivious god in, in, in the ancient world. The, the poetry about Seen and Yarrick, as he was later known, was pornographic and prurient. It shocks people even today to read, read this material. And he took Abraham and Terah out of that setting, and he brought him into the land of Canaan, and he promised that he would make him great, he would multiply his seed, and he would give him that land. I did that, God said, and... To Isaac, I gave Jacob and Esau. There's this miraculous thing that when these women were long past the age of childbearing, God produced a seed. And he chose Jacob rather than Esau to bless the world. It was through Jacob that the seed, the promise would come. Then I sent Moses and Aaron and I plagued Egypt by what I did in its midst. God delivered Israel out of Egypt and the magicians who were demon-possessed who were working their magic on on Israel, trying to destroy and blight and defeat God's purposes. And, and God overwhelmed the magicians. And the Pharaoh said, this is the finger of God. He recognized, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And then uh, 
There's a description in verses 8, 9, and 10 of the conquest of Transjordan. We talked about that uh, period of Israel's history when we first started talking about Joshua, how Israel came up into the plains of Moab and uh, defeated the nations there to the east of of Jordan. And uh, the one individual that's singled out by Joshua is Balaam, this crazy old wizard from Babylon who was hired by Balak, the king of, of Moab, to curse Israel. Uh, you, you must read the story this afternoon, Numbers 22. You, you will chuckle your way all the way through it. This is the man uh, that uh, the donkey spoke to. He's, he's more, most widely known for that incident. But the whole story has a lot of humor in it. Uh, Balaam was hired to curse Israel, and he couldn't do it. Every time he would open his mouth to curse Israel and uh, to work his magic, he wasn't an illusionist. He was empowered by demons. When he, when he began to work his magic on Israel, uh, out would come a blessing. And Balak was fit to be tied. He'd jump up and down, scream and yell. He said, I hired you to curse Israel. And Balaam would turn around and bless Israel three different times. He even predicted the coming of Messiah. He said, I see a star. A star coming out of, out of Jacob. A scepter coming out of Israel. And that's what brought the wise men. Uh, hundreds of years later, they, they said, we've seen his star. Where is he who is born king of the Jews? See, they were part of this, uh, the Magi, these magicians from Sumer, from Babylon. And they came because of this uh, prediction by this weird old wizard from Babylon who unwittingly became God's, God's agent. And the whole point of that story is that God overwhelmed principalities and powers. And, and he worked his magic on Balaam. Balaam could not curse Israel. He had to bless them. And so they were delivered uh, from these evil forces, and they crossed over into Jericho. Uh, it's interesting that uh, uh, their conquest in verse 11 was over the Baalim, the Baals of Jericho. The word that's translated citizens in, in almost all the translations is actually the word for Baals uh, in the Hebrew text. And I think this is a reference not, uh, Baal can just mean Lord, and it can be a reference to the princes of that city. But I think it's rather a reference to the, to the demons and the gods that represent uh, the idols that represented those those demons that were in Jericho, God defeated Jericho. The city fell, as well as uh, the uh, as well as the other cities inhabited by the Amorites. And then in verse twelve, I sent the hornet before you. It may be a reference to the Egyptian king Tuthmosis III, who preceded Israel into the land. Uh, brought, uh, he subjugated the entire land, weakened the Canaanites so that the conquest was uh, a bit easier for Israel. Or it may simply be the spirit of panic that God sent upon the, the Canaanites prior to, uh, prior to the conquest. But in any case, it was God who did it. I sent the hornet. You didn't do it by your sword or your bow. And I gave you a land on which you have not labored. And cities which you have not, you had not built, and you have lived in them. You're eating of vineyards and olive yards which, uh, which you did not, not plant. The emphasis all the way through here is on what God did. God rolled up his sleeves, and he entered into human history, and he acted on behalf of Israel. They saw him, and they heard him. They saw him, saw him work. Now, this is, uh, as I say, in the nature of a historical prologue. He, he reminds them of what he has done. You didn't do any of this. As, you know, if you read through the text, it's interesting to know what Israel did. He says, I, I brought you out of Egypt, but you remained a long time in the wilderness. 
That's a reference to their rebellion at Kadesh Barnea. I delivered. That's what I'm noted for. Uh, you're noted for resistance and rebellion and moaning and complaining and cry, uh, complaining and crying and and giving me a hard time for 40 years. Sin was your national pastime for 40 years. That's what you did. That's what you contributed to this effort. But but I'm the one. He says I'm the one who did all of this for you in order to do you good. Now, verse 14. Therefore, fear of the Lord reminds me of Romans 12:1. Therefore. Because of the mercies of Christ, present your bodies a living sacrifice. The same argument. Look what God has done. Look, look how he has, has worked on your behalf. Look how he's blessed you and encouraged you and enriched you. Now, he says, fear the Lord. Now, uh, I would think that it wouldn't even be necessary to make this appeal, uh, given the fact that God had been so good to Israel. Uh, they had seen God at work. His presence was visible in the, in the cloud. They heard him speak. They heard the thunder from the mountain. He revealed himself time and time again through the prophets uh, to, uh, to Israel. He acted immediately on their behalf. There were very few delays whenever they were obedient. He immediately responded whenever they were disobedient. There was an immediate act of justice or, uh, and judgment. There was no question in their mind that God existed and that he existed in power. There were no Israelis back then writing plays about uh, the God who doesn't show up. Uh, as, uh, as someone has put it, uh, if you had any doubts about the power of God uh, and the presence of God, all you had to do was to walk over to the ark and put your hand on it and your doubts would vanish uh, about a second before you did. Uh, no question that God was, was there. You would think that if people had those sorts of manifestations of the power of God, they would follow him around like a puppy dog. But Israel didn't. And we don't. And, and that's, why, that's why Joshua makes this appeal. Therefore, therefore, fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. Now, we've talked quite a bit over the last few weeks about this matter of fearing the Lord. This is not a matter, we're not talking about being afraid of him. This is not craven fear, but, but rather respect, honor, devotion. In other words, we must take God very seriously. We must take demons seriously, we must take God seriously. Both have to be have. We have to understand that there are two virulent powers in the world. Not that, that Satan is an equal and opposite power, but these powers are there. And both have to be taken uh, seriously. Uh, Jonathan, Edwards, Jonathan Edwards put it, It is a lack of the fear of God that ruins men from generation uh, to generation. We simply do not appreciate what God has done. We are not thankful, as Paul puts it in Romans 1. Israel was given lands that they did not, uh, had, to, had not labored for. They were given cities they had not built. They ate uh, vineyards and olive yards that they did not plant. And then they turned their backs on God repeatedly. Someone gave me uh, a copy of Cal Thomas's book, the death of ethics in America. There is an outstanding quote here from Abraham Lincoln that I'd like to read. 
This, uh, this statement came from his proclamation of humiliation, fasting, and prayer in April of 1863. Abraham Lincoln said, We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the need of redeeming and preserving grace. Too proud to pray to the God that made us. This was, uh, this was 1863. The same could be true today. God is not honored. He's not honored across our country. We will not let our children pray in school. We will not let them say the Declaration of, of Independence, or say the, uh, yeah, Pledge of Allegiance. Thank you. That from a school teacher. The Pledge of Allegiance, because uh, we are a nation under God, as the, as the pledge puts it. Uh, we are not any longer thankful. We do not, we are not willing to express our appreciation to God. Uh, we think we did it all by ourselves. What, uh, what foolishness. I've just uh, finished reading a book written by a man who was a fighter pilot, in, uh, in Vietnam, and at one point he was discussing with a friend his philosophy of life. He asked his friend if he believed in God. His friend said, yes, he did. He had to. When he was facing combat every day, uh, the man who wrote the book said he did not. He believes in his machine, his, uh, his airplane, and he believed in himself and his own abilities. And I thought, how, how foolish. All it takes is one sidewinder up the... Uh, exhaust on his jet, and it is all over. And yet, we will say, I am the master of my own, own fate. I can carve out my own destiny. I'm the captain of my own soul. See, that's the folly that, uh, that our nation find, uh, that characterizes our nation today, and it, and it characterizes us. We will not give thanks. When really all God wants us to do is just take him seriously, that's all. I've said so many times, God makes it so easy for us. He's not, he's not playing hard to get. He's not trying to be difficult. He makes it very clear. He just wants us to take him very, very seriously. Give our allegiance to him. Love him. Devote ourselves to him. Uh, Hosea raises the question, what is it that God wants? He answers it doesn't want you to give a 1,000 rams in sacrifice. He doesn't want you to give 10,000 gallons of oil. Uh, he doesn't want you to sacrifice your firstborn. What he wants is your heart. He wants your heart. See? He wants you to be loyal to him and walk with him. That's all he wants. To fear him, to take him seriously, and to serve him. Now, I take it that what Joshua is referring to here is not service as we normally think of service, not uh, serving on church boards or committees or teaching Sunday school classes or growth groups, as good as those things are. He's rather talking about serving God in contrast to other gods, that is, demons, idols. Verse 14, 
Therefore, fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity. The word means holy with every aspect of your being. And in truth, that is, with integrity. The outer and the inner should correspond. It should be in harmony. There should be in our heart a deep, deep desire to serve God. Uh, Now he says, put away the gods. How do you do that? How do you serve him with integrity? Put away the gods, which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. Uh, You see, that's what he's talking about. This is not Christian service, as we normally think about it, as good as that is. This is rather the choice of servitude. Will we serve God or will we serve Satan? That's the issue. And Joshua calls upon the people, and all of Scripture calls upon us to serve God with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind. And he says, if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served which were beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living, But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now, you'll notice in reading through that section, there there are three types of gods, or three regions of the ancient world from which their gods came. Across the river, these would be Sumerian gods, Babylonian gods, from Egypt, and from the uh, Amorites, that is the Canaanites. These were the three regions uh, uh, with which uh, Israel had uh, had some contact, some link. They came from Babylon. Their father was a moon-worshipping uh, Babylonian. They had spent time in Egypt, and the generation before worshipped the gods of Egypt. As a matter of fact, they worshipped those gods all the time they were wandering in the wilderness. And there were the Amorite gods, who were the Canaanite gods, that they were likely to come in contact with in the land. What Joshua is saying is that that every culture has its own gods, and if you don't watch out, these gods are going to become your gods, and it happens so uh, so insidiously. These gods are so seductive. It happens so quietly that you may not even recognize what's happening. That's exactly what happens. That's what's happening in our culture. Uh, we're being seduced every day to worship the gods of, of our culture. And this is idolatry. You see, any time we think that something more than God will satisfy us, it's idolatry. You understand what I'm saying? Anytime you or I think that something other than, than God will fully satisfy our hearts, then we've become idolaters. Now, what, what we're getting from our culture every day, it's like Muzak. It's this background music. It's, it's, it's so quiet, you, you aren't even aware of it. It's all over the place. Our, our world is singing to us about these other idols, the other things that will, that will give us satisfaction. The men and I on Wednesday morning have been, been talking about this quite a bit. And I used an illustration uh, on them of a commercial I heard this past week, or I saw, it's on television. Young uh, lith, lean lady in leotards is uh, pumping away on a on an exercise bike, uh, perspiring profusely, and uh, she completes her uh, her workout and she staggers over to a table, 
around which a number of other couples are gathered, and they're discussing their athletic accomplishments, and uh, she says, I just uh, finished 30 minutes on the bike at level six. And her husband says to you, what matters, dear, is looking good. What matters, dear, is looking good. And how many of us have bought that, that idol, that what matters is looking good? That just turns reality on its head. Everything in the Bible tells us that what matters is the heart. Man looks on the outer appearance. God looks on the heart. God really doesn't care a lot about how we look. As a matter of fact, nothing in the Bible, there's nothing in the Bible about the size or shape of our bodies. Nothing. The Bible addresses the heart. And that form of idolatry has seduced a whole generation of men who are out looking for women on the wrong basis. As Paul puts it in 1 Thessalonians, they are looking for, for wives like the pagans who do not know God. Because what matters is how they look in leotards. And the leotards can be a cover-up for a lot of, a, a, a lot of uh, laziness and, and small thinking and, and internal wickedness that can destroy a marriage. And it also has led astray a whole generation of women who want to look that way, who think that's the most important thing in the world. It's like music. Here's Satan singing that song to us. What matters is looking good. And so we start worshiping our bodies. And women try to be thinner than God ever intended them to be. And men are out looking for women like that. And he has sold a whole generation right down the river. And we eat it up. We eat it up. Now, this is the kind of stuff that we, that we pick up from our, from our culture. And we need to understand where it comes from and what it leads us to. Behind it, behind it all, is a bunch of demons. Again, you see, that's not a neutral philosophy of life. What that does is wean you away from God. You're looking for satisfaction. We're looking for, for satisfaction in something other than God. Where's that come from? It comes right out of the pit. I don't know if there is one demon out there called body beautiful. I doubt it. I bet there are thousands and thousands of demons that are selling us that garbage every day. John White has a very helpful analogy. I shared it with the man Wednesday morning. He says, uh, you know, the, the problem is that, that, that pleasures go awry. You know, we have certain desires that are perfectly good. The desire for food and, and drink and exercise and sleep, those normal physical desires are perfectly, perfectly good. They're given to us by, by God. Those are the desires of the flesh. They're normal. Those desires become our servants. Uh, he said, uh, it's also, they're also the desires of the eyes. The, 
we like beautiful things. We like to surround ourselves with beautiful things. God likes beautiful things. He, uh, he created and he said, it's good. The Hebrew word has the connotation of beautiful. Ooh, it's beautiful, he said. Uh, ambition is, is a good thing if we're ambitious for the right things, if we want God's honor, if we want the extension of his kingdom, and if we want to grow in grace. Those are all good desires. They're wholesome, healthy, God-given. But what Satan does is turn those desires into lusts. In other words, the desires become inordinate, and we think that uh, these are the things we must have rather than see them as the byproducts of of having God and and knowing God, and and we want them at all costs. We begin to pursue them, no matter what it it means to us. And, And behind that, that change from desire to lust is the evil one. Here's the illustration that he uses that helps me. He says, if you, you ever stick your head in a piano, I wouldn't advise it unless the support is good. But You stick your head in that piano and you hum, and a string will vibrate. It will begin to resonate in harmony. It's called sympathetic vibration. You know what happens to us day after day? We're sitting down watching the tube. And there's this, there's this hum. Mm, what matters is looking good. Something begins to vibrate. And we respond to it. And what we've done is embrace the world's view of reality. We've become an idolater. We've sold ourselves right into Satan's hands. That's how insidious the whole thing is. That's why the Bible takes takes idolatry so seriously. It's the thing that will eventually wean us away from God. My time is gone, but let me uh, say a word about the rest of the chapter. Uh, Joshua calls on Israel to fear the Lord and serve him. And uh, he says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Uh, Israel knew he meant what he said. Here's a man who throughout his life was the servant of the Lord. When Israel was down at the foot of Mount Sinai sacrificing a calf, Joshua was up on top worshiping God. When Israel turned back at, at Kadesh Barnea, refused to go into the land, it was, it was Caleb who said, we can do it. So when he, when he makes this statement, they, they knew that he, he was serious. He was taking God seriously. So the people say, we'll do it too. Far be it from us that we shall forsake the Lord to serve other gods. We also, verse 18, like you, will serve the Lord for he is our God. It's interesting, Joshua says, no, you won't. Joshua is the ultimate realist because he knows our hearts. He recognizes this as a blast of egoism. It's all it is. It's like Peter's statement, I will never forsake you. I'll never deny you. And, and our Lord looked at him, I'm sure, with kindness in his eyes, said, oh, Peter, Peter, you'll deny me three times before the night's over. Because our Lord was a realist too. He knows how easily we're seduced. And Joshua said, you'll not be able to serve the Lord, for he's a holy God. 
He's a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgression and your sin, literally, not sins. We're not talking here about the fact that we will all sin and fail at times. This is the singular. It refers to the sin of idolatry, the sin of forsaking God and turning your back on Him. See, there's only one, there's only one way to be saved from idolatry, and that's to submit your life wholly to God. If you don't submit your life wholly to God, you will serve, serve Satan wholly and there's nothing God can do for you. You're, you're outside the, the pale of help. It's what Hebrews is talking about when, when it says in Hebrews 10, the author of Hebrews says, If you trample underfoot the blood of Christ, there remains no more, no more opportunity for salvation. The only way to come to God is through Christ. And if you people turn your back on God, begin to serve demons, God cannot forgive that. That's the unforgivable sin. There's nothing that he can do about that. But what he's trying to get them to see is the seriousness of the choice they're about to make. They must submit wholly to God. So the people say again, we will serve the Lord. We'll do it. We're with you. And Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen for yourselves the Lord to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. Now therefore, put away the foreign gods. This this is Joshua speaking. They say, We're witnessing against ourselves. We're going to choose God. We're going to serve him rather than Satan. And Joshua's, All right. I hear you. Then put away the foreign gods which are within you, literally, and incline your hearts to the Lord. You see, some of these Israelites could have said, I'm not an idolater, I don't have any idols, come check my tent out. And you could ransack their tent, rummage through all of their gear, and you wouldn't find any teraphim, you wouldn't find any, any baalim, you wouldn't find any gods there. But Joshua realizes something that uh, the people might not realize, and that you might not realize, and that I might not realize, is that idolatry takes place in the heart. And when these people were saying, I can do it, he's saying, you can't. See, he wants them to take this thing very seriously. It's only by the grace of God that any of us can serve the Lord. This is not a choice to be taken lightly. And when we make this decision, we make this choice, it's a choice to follow God to the end of the world. That's the choice we're making. It's not something to be taken lightly. What we need to understand, again, is that there really are only two choices in the world. There, there's no neutral ground. There, there's, there, there's nothing in the center. There's no third thing. We either serve God or we serve Satan. There are no self-made men. There are no self-made women. We're always subject to either one personality or the other. So we have to choose. And I would address to you and to myself the same word that Joshua addresses to the people. If it's disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, then choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. You have to serve one or the other. But as for me, I'm going to serve the Lord. And significantly, at the very end of the book, we don't have time to look at it, but in verses 29 through 33, Joshua the son of Nun is designated the servant of the Lord. That's, that's a term that's very sparingly used in the Old Testament. Used of men and women whose hearts were utterly devoted to God. So I would ask you to choose. 
this, this may be the moment. This may be the time that you make that choice to serve with, with integrity, to serve with a, with a whole heart. Will you bow your heads with me? I'd like to read something that Paul wrote. Something we must take seriously. This is from his letter to the Ephesians. You, he says, were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. This is Paul's view of reality. This is things as they really are. He he is saying that if you don't know Christ, if you have not chosen the Lord Jesus as your Savior, then you are not in neutral. You are serving the prince of the power of darkness. There are really only two options in this world. We're either serving the prince of darkness or we're serving the prince of peace. There's no third thing. And you may think of yourself as in control, the captain of your own soul. You may think that your destiny is in your hands, but it's not. It's not. Paul says that that you're living according to the philosophies and the power of the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience. And I would invite you this morning to make that choice to be transplanted from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of our dear son. All you have to say is, Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for me. He overwhelmed principalities and powers when he hung on that cross. He defeated Satan roundly. The battle is over in terms of your spiritual destiny. He solved that problem. You're no longer in the grip of the evil one. You have the power to to step from his kingdom into our Lord Jesus' kingdom. Can I ask you this morning to make that choice? This is the moment to decide. And if you are willing to make that decision and make Jesus Christ Lord and submit yourself to God, will will you just put your hand up right where you are? Nobody's going to embarrass you. Just put your hand up. How about the rest of us? Those of us that have, we've stepped from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. We've made that choice, but we, we're still clinging to some of the old idolatries, the old idols in the heart that consume our time and energy and, and draw us away from God. Would you make that choice this morning? To call that thing what God calls it, it's evil. To thank God for his forgiveness. And ask him for the grace and the strength to go on in obedience. Will you do that? Father, we all were very much as as Tara was. Consumed by the spirit of this age. Caught up in, in the powers of darkness. We thank you very much for bringing us out of that kingdom and bringing us into the light. 
It is not of our own doing. You did it. And our response to you is is to take you seriously, to give our hearts devotion to you, to love you with all of our heart and serve you. Lord, give us eyes to see the world as, as you see it. Help us to to recognize those insidious attacks of the evil one upon us. Help us to see, see him as he is, as one who wants to maim and murder and blight and destroy. One who holds out life, but who, who gives death. And help us to, to draw near to you and find in you the life that, that we've sought in other ways. You and you alone are the source of our satisfaction. Thank you for our deliverance. Amen.